0: To Matthew chapter 1 and also if you would find Luke chapter 1. We're going to read from both passages today. Uh, these are very familiar passages to you because they re- are the Bible's only records of the birth of Christ. Now this morning I want to come back to some thoughts about Christmas. Uh, we're just one day removed and so we'll continue the subject today. And there are some very important doctrines contained in the first advent of Christ and some that we don't really talk so much about unless we're dealing with the subject of Christmas. Uh, the incarnation of Christ is surely an important doctrine and one that has been challenged throughout history, sometimes in very strenuous terms. Uh, in our study of First John, uh, we took some time to talk about the incarnation of Christ and it was a such an important doctrine to the Apostle John that he said that unless you receive this truth of Christ's incarnation that you cannot really be a child of God. And as we come to this subject today about the virgin birth, there is a, of course, a vital connection to the incarnation because without it Jesus would have been born of man and he could not be God. Uh, He wouldn't be God in the flesh without it. And so the incarnation would actually be a, a moot subject unless we also consider with it the miraculous way in which Jesus was born. And so that makes the virgin birth of Christ a core component of the Christian faith. There is no biblical Christianity without Jesus as God. And so Christianity has to be redefined into some other terms if there is no virgin birth. And what we also have to do is we have to ignore the Bible's very clear record of it. Now, the biblical record is stated in Matthew chapter 1 and also in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, There are some Old Testament prophecies, of course, concerning it, but the actual event of Christ's birth is recorded here in these two chapters. And according to both of these accounts... Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, in Matthew, we have the confirmation of an angel. And then in Luke, uh, the angel's confirmation is supplemented by Mary's personal confirmation. Now, if you'll look first, please, in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Stand with me, please. Let's just stand up here as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus was on this wise... When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying... Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus." there we have the confirmation from the angel. And most likely, this is the same angel named Gabriel that we read about in the book of Luke. So I want you to look in Luke chapter 1, if you would. And we'll notice here Mary affirming that she is a virgin and also that she is amazed that she could have a child. So in Luke chapter 1, verse number 26, it says, And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man?" And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time of reading your word today. And Lord, we just pray you'd open up our hearts to your word today. And I just pray, Lord, you might speak to someone today who needs to know you as Savior and also to draw Christians close to you In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The virgin birth is a tremendously important subject, and from reading these two accounts, we're certain of both of these writers' intent. There is no mistake, and both of them are very precise about this point, that there was a virgin birth that occurred. I'm going to look rather rather quickly at the first part of this message today because I want to spend more time with the second. I've already mentioned some of these things in in the message last Sunday, so I'm going to be brief on the first point. But this is the reality of prophecy. The reality of prophecy. The virgin birth is taught in the Old Testament so that when it occurred, it really shouldn't have been shocking news to the Jews. They were already familiar with many myths and legends about some strange bursts that had occurred. Um, If you have been with us in our Revelation series, we talked about uh, the religion of ancient babylon and in genesis chapter 11 there's a story about a man named nimrod who built a tower which was a monument to the worship of the sun the moon and the stars and nimrod's tower was the beginning of idol worship and he began a religion that was is the backbone of every false religion in the world today satan is a counterfeiter and what satan had done or in that time was to make a counterfeit story of a miraculous birth. Nimrod's wife was Semiramis, and she was the high priestess of this false religion, and she had a son by the name of Tammuz, and she claimed that he was born from a miraculous birth. She said that he was conceived by a sunbeam. She also claimed that she was born miraculously. She said that there was an egg that fell from heaven, and she hatched out of it. As you know, I explained that that is the basis of the Roman Catholic dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. What Rome did was to simply mix pagan stories with Christian doctrine, and they came up with this very strange story of Mary's miraculous birth. Now that's bad, but the sad, really sad part of it is that the birth of Jesus is sort of tacked onto that by many people and they think that it's just some kind of a wild story that mimics the pagan myths of the past in the Old Testament times, Israel was often caught up in cult worship of false gods. And we read in the book of Jeremiah where he mentions this very thing. He's rebuking the children of Israel about this. And he refers to Semiramis as being the queen of heaven, just like Roman Catholics call Mary the queen of heaven. And also in that passage, he mentions Tammuz, who is her son, So the Jews had been mixed up in these pagan practices, and they were very familiar with miraculous births that have claimed to have been made. And they certainly, though, would not have accepted the Gentile legends as the source of the information of the birth of the Messiah. Now, they had something other than old uh, myths and legends to believe. They rather had the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets that would tell them that Christ would be born. Now, Moses is considered to be the greatest prophet of Israel, and it was Moses who wrote down the Genesis record of creation. And there in Genesis chapter 3.15, he he speaks of the seed of the woman. And the Scripture says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." And that verse was the main topic of our sermon last Sunday morning, so I'm not going to review all that information again. But I want you to just hold on to that information because here the seed of the woman refers to Jesus. And it's very important because there we have the first prediction of the Messiah, but it's also the first prediction in Scripture that we have of the virgin birth. All people are born of the seed of the man. There's never been a person born of the seed of the woman. You have to have a sperm and an egg. People aren't born without those. But Moses says here, the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. And so there you have the earliest prediction of the virgin birth. But we also have a very clear prophecy in the book of Isaiah, which is the sign of the virgin. And if you have trouble interpreting uh, Genesis 3:15 where it says the seed of the woman, you shouldn't have any trouble at all when you read Isaiah because he says the Lord or therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Lord will give you a sign. Sign of what? Well, a sign of Emmanuel which means God with us. And so how are they going to know that God is with us? A virgin will conceive, and she'll bear a son. And so when that happens, when the impossible happens, when something that has never happened before happens, when the virgin conceives, then you'll know that God is in the flesh, that God is with you. Now, a very interesting aspect of this is that there were no hasty weddings in Israel. A bride had to be pure And so there was a proving time so that no man would get a bride that was already pregnant. And so a minimum of nine months had to elapse before marriage was consummated. And if a girl was pregnant, then that would be proved at that time, uh, and the wedding wouldn't take place. And it was during that proving time that Mary did become pregnant. And that's why Joseph was so upset about it, and he was going to put her away and call off the wedding. And that's when the angel intervened to stop him. Why did he stop him? Because Mary was still a virgin. She hadn't been unfaithful to him. And so Mary, or so rather Matthew, quoted from the Old Testament to reveal what Isaiah meant by this sign. In Matthew 1, verse 22, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now there is a lot of argument about what Isaiah meant by a virgin. And there are some Bible translations that actually substitute young girl because in rare cases the word that's used there could mean this. But that reasoning is completely debunked by Matthew. I mean, he makes it very clear to us that there's no mistaking what Isaiah meant when he said a virgin. The uh, the surrounding circumstances, the angel, and what was said to Joseph prove what Isaiah meant. Mary was a virgin. And so here we have a very different birth recorded from all other births that we have in Scripture, different from the world has ever seen. Now, the Scriptures are not short on telling us about some amazing births, uh, surely we would have to include in this category the birth of Isaac. That was an amazing birth. It was miraculous in its own way, and without getting too graphic about it, uh, Abraham and Sarah had a child when they were far beyond the age of bearing children. and uh, Sarah was 90 years old. Physically, her body was incapable of reproduction. And so her reproductive organs were inoperable at that time. And what God had to do in order for Sarah to conceive was to reconstitute that. He had to make her body over again and put all those things back into working order again. And that wasn't an everyday occurrence. Sarah knew it. Abraham knew it. And so when they first heard the news that they were going to have a baby, they both mocked because they knew it could never happen. That was a miraculous birth, but it wasn't a virgin birth. And then there were other births, like the birth of Samson and the birth of John the Baptist. They were miraculous in certain ways. There were supernatural elements that were involved in them, but neither of them was a virgin birth. And so this stands alone in the biblical record, and it also stands alone in all the history of mankind that no one has ever been born of a virgin. Now, since it is so unique there is widespread rejection of the prospect. Now, that's what I want to discuss with you next, the rejection of the prospect that anyone could actually be born of a virgin. And the virgin birth has always been a problem for people. It was to the Jews. They should have expected it and they should have believed it, but it was a problem to them. It was a problem to the philosophical world. And that's what John was contending with in 1 John, where he speaks of the incarnation. The Gnostics that he was speaking against denied that God could come in the flesh. And today, the opposition is still there. Because you do find some in Christianity in liberal colleges and in seminaries that try to explain away the virgin birth. And so they'll look for other answers, they'll look for some other way, they destroy the significance of it as a doctrine that must be believed, and they say it's not necessary for you to believe in the virgin birth. But we know it has to be true, because the Bible record is very clear about it. To deny it, the Bible must be denied. But when you have Christians that deny such things as the uh, Genesis account of creation... And when they say that evolution is a fact and not theory, then it's only a skip, hop, and a jump to deny anything that's supernatural. And so this is really the brick wall that many people are up against when you talk about the virgin birth. The brick wall is the scientific impossibility. It's impossible, they say. Science says this can never happen. Or at least that's what human science says. It's impossible to have a virgin birth. There are unusual births and there are engineered births, but there is no such thing as a virgin birth. There are no births where a sperm of a man is not used to impregnate the egg of a woman. Science, of course, has progressed uh, remarkably in this area. In 1978, there was the first birth of a child that was conceived outside of the mother's womb. We call that the test tube baby. First time it happened was in 1978 in England, where they took a mother's egg out of her body and they artificially impregnated it with the father's sperm, then put that zygote back into the mother's uterus, and a child was born. Now, that is an amazing birth, but it's not a virgin birth. It is true that you could have a virgin and have her egg removed, and then have it impregnated with the sperm of a man, have a male sperm donor, put it back into the body, and in that sense, I suppose she could be a virgin. But that's not what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of the virgin birth. You see, with in vitro fertilization, the essential components for the production of the zygote are there. You have the female ovum, and you have the male sperm. But Jesus was conceived without the male sperm. And in that sense... It was scientifically impossible. And so on that basis, science can't prove it, it's rejected. Because science cannot demonstrate it, people reject it. Well, there's another process that others wonder about, and perhaps this is the answer to the virgin birth. This is called parthenogenesis. And it's a process where some microbes and some seeds and some spores, some insects reproduce. And parthenogenesis is actually a derivation from the Greek which means virgin birth. Parthenogenesis means virgin birth and you do have some things in nature that reproduce in that way. In the 1940s, a Dr. Gregory Pincus, who was the co-inventor of the pill contraceptive, did some experimentation with rabbits in which he was able to get a female rabbit to reproduce without a male sperm. He applied heat and chemicals to the rabbit's ovum, and this female rabbit reproduced. Well, that's never been done with a human. Now, there is, though, a very interesting result to it. The offspring of the rabbit was always a female. Always and only it would be a female, most of you probably know why. The female only has an X chromosome. The male has the X and the Y chromosome, and that's what determines the sex of the baby. So you combine an X with an X, and you get a female, combine an X with a Y, and you get the male. Well, since this was a female, and she only has the X chromosome, the only offspring that you could ever get from that would be a female. And so that can't be the explanation for the birth of Christ. Christ was a man. And if Parthenogenesis was the cause of his birth, then the angel would have to say, call his name Jezette, not Jesus. So proving proving the, the virgin birth scientifically, that is a problem for people, and so they reject it. But I think we do need to be reminded that science means knowledge, and true knowledge always comes from God. And so it doesn't matter what the subject is. If God says it, it's true, whether a test tube can prove it or not. Well, there are other ideas about the birth of Christ. There's also the skeptical probability. I was doing some reading on this, and anybody who knows an ounce of history is not going to deny the existence of Jesus. A few years ago, it was kind of popular to deny that Jesus was really a man, that he was just a legend, he was just a myth. But nobody is really given serious consideration today unless they do believe that Jesus actually lived but how was he born? That's the real question. It's another story. And what we find is that it's not uncommon to have an interpretation that Mary was the one who invented the virgin birth. Uh, One place I was reading said this, it is likely that this innocent girl got pregnant in one of three different ways. Number one, she was raped while on her way to school and could not say so because of the massive depression and feeling of uncleanliness that arose from the rape. Number two, her boyfriend at the time dumped her after learning about the pregnancy, and she had to find an alternative in the angel Gabriel and the Holy Spirit. Number three, she did undergo in vitro fertilization, and that's what made her pregnant without knowing any man. Whichever the case among the three, it was a big sin, even a crime for any woman to become pregnant out of wedlock, for that meant being stoned in the marketplace by people who are less righteous. She was assisted by Joseph and Elizabeth to invent the first virgin pregnancy. The poor girl had to think of an explanation, and she had to think of one very fast assisted by poor Joseph, who decided to take on a burden that wasn't his, and Elizabeth, who had mysteriously become pregnant. Did she cheat on her husband? They claimed the involvement of the angel Gabriel and probably the mighty Holy Spirit and helped invent the concept of virgin pregnancy and birth. That's what a lot of people think concerning the virgin birth of Christ. Now, that really is just a modern variation of what the Jews thought at the time. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to John chapter 8. And here we have a conversation between Jesus and the unbelieving Jews. They claimed that they were descended from Abraham, and Jesus claimed superiority because he said, My father is not Abraham. He said, My father is God. In other words, they're children of natural descent, but he is a child of supernatural descent. And so we look in John chapter 8, beginning in verse number 38. Jesus says, "...I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that have told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father." Then they said, then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Now here in this passage, you see what these unbelieving Jews were thinking every time that they spoke with Jesus. They thought, God is not his father. Now, look at the last part of verse number 41. They say, we be not born of fornication. Now, why did they say that? Well, it's because they knew the history of Jesus' birth. Mary had become pregnant before she was married, and so the assumption was she was guilty of fornication. And so, therefore, Jesus is born of fornication. And then before this, in the sixth chapter, Jesus said that he was the bread that came down from heaven. And their response to that statement... They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? And so there you have the same conclusion. If Mary was not guilty of fornication with some other man, then Joseph must be the one who's the father. He got her pregnant before the wedding. And so they had a shotgun wedding or a bow and arrow wedding, whatever you want to call it. So... They're thinking then, if she wasn't pregnant uh, before, then at least this is just an an ordinary man, this is an ordinary woman that got together and they had children. And then there are other theories about this. And this is still uh, a common theory today, is that at the base of the hill down below Nazareth, there was a very busy road there, And people would travel between Syria and Egypt on that road. Many times soldiers would pass through there, travelers going through. And it wasn't uncommon for uh, people to be accosted on that road. And so they, they assume that what happened is that Mary was walking along that road and she was accosted by a soldier or someone and she became pregnant. Well, these are just theories that people come up with that's where they come up with the idea that mary was raped and that's why she had the child but none of that's in the biblical record that's fantasizing that's looking for a way out of the claims and so all of this skepticism is invented as probabilities of another way that mary could become pregnant so that they can deny the virgin birth so the modern interpretations that we have are not new they they stretch all the way back into the New Testament times, and they are without foundation, just as the surmisings, all those guesses of the Jews were wrong. Well, there's still yet a third viewpoint that has to be looked at, and this is the supernatural necessity. Now, if you don't want to be a Christian, if you are a skeptic and that's all that you are, then you don't need to be concerned about the supernatural necessity of a virgin birth. You don't need a virgin birth for some kind of off-brand Christianity. But if you're going to be a Christian, and if you have any hope for heaven, Jesus had to have a supernatural birth from a virgin. Now, does that mean, then, in order for you to be saved, that you must believe in the virgin birth? I mean, how many things do you actually have to believe in order to be saved? Well, there might be some things that you don't understand... But you can't reject anything that God says and be a Christian. See, what the Holy Spirit does when he saves people is that he opens up their hearts to the understanding of the supernatural. And I I, I don't see how that a person could be a Christian and, and have this explained to them and see this written in the Word of God and told this, this is what the Bible says, and reject it. What would be the difference between that person and the unbelieving Jews? Is there really a necessity that Jesus was born of a virgin? Well, there is, because by denying it, they said that Jesus was born of fornication, or at the very least, that Jesus was nothing more than a human. So I'm going to give you three reasons today as we finish for the supernatural necessity of the virgin birth. Now, the first one I've already alluded to, number one, is that flesh begets flesh. When you combine a human mother and a human father, what do you get? Well, you always get a human. Every time, you're going to get a human. Now, in in my time, I've been to the hospital to look at some babies that at first didn't look like it. Uh, Not my grandbabies, of course, but some of them you wonder. But time proves that that baby is human, and you're never going to get anything from humans but humans. Well, is that sufficient for us? Can we have a Christ that's really nothing more than flesh? Well, there are a hundred ways that we could go about this, but let me give you one, and perhaps this is a little bit obscure in your thinking, and you might not even related this to the subject. But here's what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 24. He says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof Falleth away. Now what is Peter speaking of? Well here he has under discussion the new birth. And he says, Without the new birth in Christ, all flesh perishes like grass. There is no longer any life. And that's what happens to every person who doesn't know Christ as Savior. If you're not a born again believer in Christ, you'll perish, because flesh is nothing but flesh. It perishes. Now what if we take that same scripture and we apply it to Christ? What if he is nothing but flesh? Well, then he would die, and then there would be no life for him. He couldn't arise from the grave. The scripture says all flesh is like grass it withers and it dies, and it's gone. So Christ could not have come out of the grave because he would be nothing but flesh. And if he didn't arise from the grave, then he can't be God, he can't be the Savior. There is no human that's ever resurrected himself. So if Christ did not arise from the dead, what happens to every person that's a Christian? Well, if we believe that Christ is not supernaturally born, he's nothing but flesh, then we have a dead Christ. He doesn't live. And Paul says that if Christ is not raised, then we're miserable. We have no hope. He says, you're still in your sins if Christ didn't come out of the grave. So Jesus has to be more than flesh. You put a man and a woman together, and you get nothing but flesh. And flesh plus flesh does not produce God. But when the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, the offspring was more than flesh. He was man and God. He was God so that, or he became man rather, so that he could die. And he was man so that he could suffer for our sins. But he was God so that he could live. He was God so that he could live a perfect life while he was on this earth, and he could be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So you take away the virgin birth. Jesus is only a man, and you don't have a Savior. You're still in your sins. I am still in my sins. We're all dead in sin, and we're never going to live again. Now, that leads me, secondly, to another reason why we have this supernatural necessity, and that's because of the rescue from ruin. You need the virgin birth to be rescued from ruin. Last Sunday morning, the entire message was mostly about this. It was about the rescue from ruin. And when God said that the the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, that was a promise that paradise would be regained. Man was ruined by his fall. And so if Jesus had not been born of a virgin, he would have the sinful nature of man, and he also would be ruined by the fall. And those that are ruined can't rescue Those that are ruined cannot restore paradise. For that, it takes God. It takes the redemption of God. So it takes the righteousness of God. And this is what Jesus is. He is the righteousness of God, the perfect man. He's the only one who can restore paradise. Righteousness must reign for mortal man to have any hope. Now, where there is no righteousness, the Word of God says death reigns. Now listen to what Paul says when he speaks of the sin of Adam that ruined the race. He says in Romans 5, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, speaking of Adam, much more they who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So only the God-man who has no sinful nature can be perfectly righteous. And he's the one that provides righteousness for us. And that is what rescues us from ruin. Now thirdly, and very important. All of this is doctrinal. All of it works together. Flesh begets flesh. That deals with the natural, inherent depravity of man. All people are dead in their trespasses and sin because they are all flesh. And the rescue of ruin, thats from ruin, that's the penalty that's paid by Christ. It's the atonement for sin. It's the satisfaction that has to be made to an angry God to appease his wrath and end the hostility between man and God. But there's yet still another great doctrine that comes from the virgin birth of Christ, and that is the truth of the Trinity. The truth of the Trinity. Now, Moses gives us the Bible's first indication of the plurality of God, and we find it in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26. He says here, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now there we have some very interesting sentence construction. The word for God is Elohim, and that is a plural word. Said, which comes afterward in the original language, is a singular verb. And then you come back and it says, let us, and we have the plural again. So what does this mean when you take a plural noun and you put it with a singular verb? Well, it tells us that God is more than one but whatever he is, the more than one is singular. It's all one. And there's where we have our first indication of the Trinity. And then we know that God is more than two by looking at many references in Scripture. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together. So how does the virgin birth figure into that? Well, I want to go back to our text in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew 1, verse number 20. But while he thought on these things... Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we have the Holy Spirit there in verse number 20. And Jesus, who is the Son, born, and he will save his people from their sins. Now, let me refer you back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He's the one who gave us the prophecy concerning the virgin birth. And Isaiah writes in chapter number 43, he says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me... There is no Savior. Now, hold on just a minute. In the New Testament we just read, call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But God says in the Old Testament, Jehovah God says, beside me, there is no Savior. And you see there the italics? That means the words aren't actually there. Those are clarifying words that have been added by the translator. And so it actually says this, and beside me, no Savior. So what do you get from that? Jesus is God. If God is the only one who saves, and Jesus saves, then Jesus is God. And so what we have here is a manifestation of the Trinity. Jesus is the manifestation of the invisible God. So we have the Holy Spirit here. We found that in Matthew chapter 1. And we have in this passage... Uh, Jesus, we have Jehovah God, and says he's the Savior. And this virgin birth then is tied to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is a plurality. God is in the flesh when Jesus came. He must be. So he can't be Joseph's son, and he can't be anyone else's son. He has to be God's son. Now, if we go back to Isaiah again, in the 14th verse of that same chapter, it says, thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer the Holy One of Israel. And then we go into the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 3, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So who is the Redeemer then? Well, the Old Testament says it's the Lord. That's Jehovah God. And in the New Testament, it says it's Jesus Christ. So if Christ is the Redeemer and God is the Redeemer, then who is Jesus Christ? He's God. You know, if you ever want to Pick up some scriptures to use with Jehovah Witnesses. Is Jesus truly Jehovah God? Go right here to Isaiah chapter 43. But it gets even better than this. In the 15th verse of Isaiah 43, it says, I am the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now listen then to what the angel said to the Virgin Mary. We read it in Luke at the beginning, and so we come full circle now. Luke 1, verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Jesus is that holy thing. The Lord in Isaiah is the Holy One. Now, can you miss it? Jesus is God. See, the virgin birth is an essential doctrine of the faith. Jesus is not God without it. He's not the Redeemer without it. He's not the Savior without it. And friend, you can't be saved without it. So it was a miracle. It was unique. It was a -a one-of-a-kind birth. Jesus was born of the virgin. He is God, and he came to save people from their sins. You believe that? You have to believe that if you're going to be a Christian. You must believe this to be a child of God. And so the miracle the virgin birth is that God came down from heaven. He came to this world and he became a man and he went to the cross to die for our sins. I hope that you believe that. He's our Savior. He is both God and man. He is the perfect man. So I can tell you today, you can take comfort in what the Bible says. Take comfort that the scriptures are true about this. Jesus is the Savior. And I promise you today, if you ask him, he'll save you from your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word today. And we thank you, Lord, for the truths, for the truths that we find in Scripture. Here we see Jesus born of a virgin. He's God and man, the perfect man who could come and live a perfect life, and then die for our sins. And then he is God so that he could arise from the grave under his own power and live forever. And this is the true hope that we have, that if we're going to live forever, we must have our faith, all of our confidence in him as the Savior from our sins. Lord, I pray that you would speak to some heart today, someone here who doesn't know Christ, that you'd help them to understand that Jesus came into the world to save them, and may they trust you today. And for Christians that are here, I just pray, Lord, that having learned these truths and, or reaffirming these truths in our hearts, that we'll be able to tell other people that Jesus truly is God and there is no way to heaven without him. Help us to understand this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.